Okay, guys, we're going to finish up our last lesson in Thessalonians. We've been looking at First and Second Thessalonians for the last few months, and we're going to finish it up. So we're in lesson 15 today. We're going to look at some final exhortations from Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Now we're going to take it section by section, so let's take a look together. First of all, notice with me, we're going to talk about the request for prayer that Paul has. We're going to look at verses 1 to 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have the faith. All right, so let's take a look here. First of all, we're going to look at the request for prayer. The first thing I want you to notice is that they were to pray for the progress of the gospel as it is glorified in people being saved. Now, I, I want you to just think for a moment. Usually when we have prayer time or prayer meetings, what do we usually pray about? What do we usually pray about? Sicknesses and stuff, Okay. All right, that's usually primary. If you look at most prayer lists, they're always going to be praying about somebody who's sick. What else do we pray about? Okay, unsafe people. Yeah, that's true, Donna. Okay. Often lesser than most, but that's not the predominant thing. So, yeah, we do pray for that. What else do we pray about? Guidance and direction for our lives. Okay. Well, how about as a church, how do we pray? Okay, for the pastor, well, that's a good thing, right? Okay. What else? Uh, growth, okay. All right, Donna said it, Bruce was reiterating it, growth. Nation, I mean, it's not that difficult to think about the things that we pray for. But I want you to notice when Paul's requesting prayer, his focus is on the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? The progress of the gospel. And he's wanting us to pray for that the gospel message would be what? <laughs> Heard. And that it would be glorified through what? People getting saved. I think that's a pretty prominent thing for us to be praying about, right? To be praying about the gospel going forth, the message of Jesus, and that people would be saved, and therefore the message would be glorified. Okay, so the second thing I want you to notice is they were to pray for Paul's protection and deliverance from wicked unbelievers. So the next thing that they're going to be praying about here, he wants them to pray about, is for their protection. Now, does everybody that you come in contact with during the week a believer? Uh, do you ever meet somebody who's antagonistic towards your faith? A lot, right? But we would never think of praying for protection, right? Now, in Paul's day, probably when he's talking about protection, he's also talking about his physical protection because he's experienced persecution. But we need to be praying for our protection, so when you think of it in terms of like that, I think it's getting a little bit more extreme here even in our country, you know what I'm saying? 
in, in the Northeast especially because we don't live in the Bible Belt. People look at the news and they think we're nuts. And I think, you know, we want to pray for the gospel to spread, but we also want to pray for what? Ourselves to be what? Protected. Do you know what I'm saying? To be protected. Now, let's go on. Let's verses 1 and 2. Let's continue on verses 3 through 5. We're going to see the faithfulness of the Lord. I think this is significant that he's going to talk about this, especially after asking for prayer for the spread of the gospel and his protection. He's going to talk about God's faithfulness. Look at what he says, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you will do and will, that you do and will do the things we commanded you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So first of all, I want you to notice verse 3 talks about being established and protected. The Lord is faithful in establishing believers and protecting them from Satan. So the Lord is faithful. Okay, stop for a moment. I mean, if you struggle in your Christian life, maybe you're going good one week, next week you're just not progressing along, maybe you haven't had your prayer time as you should be, you're feeling kind of low, maybe you're struggling with sin, and you just kind of like are ready to just kind of throw in the towel. You ever have that feeling? Is that real? That's real Christianity, right? Oftentimes when we're in the midst of that, we look to ourselves as being the ones, like, I can't do this, Lord. I can't pray like this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, I'm jet lagging. For two weeks now I've been jet lagging. I'm going to be honest with you. My prayer life has struggled. Why? Because when I pray... Guess what I want to do? Sleep. That's even standing up. Okay, so you can stand up, George, and pray. No, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm just in a state of collapse. Well, so I'm telling, saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm not praying the way I should be. I'm not praying at all the way I should be. However, when you look at a passage like this, the faithfulness of God's work in your life, who does that belong to? God, it doesn't belong to you because you're not going to always do well. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not always going to have a perfect Christian life. And that sometimes we communicate that to other people, that we need to have this perfect Christian life. But the reality is, that's not always true. That's not always going to be true. And what you need to rest in is rest in God and his faithfulness with you. So does, does God know that I'm jet-lagging right now? Yeah, you better believe it. Does he know that you had a terrible week? Does he know that you were up all night, maybe with a sick child or something, and you didn't get your sleep? Does he know that you're wrestling with some kind of health issue? Does he know all of that? Does he know what work's like? Does he know all of that? And all of those things, when you think about it, they impact our lives, don't they? They impact us. Now, the enemy will come to us and he'll say to us, well, you obviously aren't a good Christian, you obviously aren't doing what's right. And the reality is, is that, look, it's not based on my faithfulness. I need to be faithful, I need to be holy. But it's based on that I rest in him. That's what faith is about. That's what the life of faith is, is resting your faith in Jesus. And what did he say? He's going to establish you. 
In fact, isn't that what he... In fact, that's what he says in Philippians. Look at what he says in Philippians. Go over to Philippians. We, and I know this because we've been going through Philippians earlier. Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Paul has this confidence that God's going to do a work in your life. If you are following Jesus, if you truly committed your life to follow him, if you're saved, he's doing a work in your life. He's molding your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he's going to establish you, but not just that, he's going to protect you from who? The biggest enemy you have. Yes, Satan, that's right, Donna. The biggest enemy you have, who wants to destroy your life, who wants to destroy your family, who wants to destroy everything about you, destroy the church, he's going to protect you. And you've got to rest in who? The faithfulness of the Lord. Let's go on. Look with me at verse 4 now. Look again, his confidence here. Paul had confidence in the Lord that they would do what he had commanded them. That's pretty radical. I mean, he's writing this church. Think about it. He, he's a traveling evangelist. He goes, spends a little bit of time with them, establishes them, just gives them enough to go on, and then he moves on to the next city. And he's got confidence that they're going to do what he told them to do. Why would he have that kind of confidence? Did you know what I'm saying? Why would he have that kind of confidence? Why would he have a confidence that they're going to do, not just do, but will to do, the stuff that he's telling them to do? Why would he have that kind of confidence? I mean, it's not like he's grown up with them all of his life and knows them intimately. He does know them intimately, but... Why would he have that kind of confidence that he knows they're going to do the right thing? Anybody got a clue? Okay, so Bruce is saying the reason why he has that confidence, it's not that he's got a confidence in them per se, but a confidence in who? God. That God is the one who's going to be working in their life. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is the one who's going to be working in their life. Now, let's stop for a moment. I want you to think with me for a moment, because you ever get frustrated with Christians who maybe start out strong, but then they don't, they just kind of teeter, or they're struggling, or they're wrestling with some issue, and they're not moving forward in their faith. And so our tendency in churches, especially in our type of churches, is to kind of write them off, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, well, they're not overcoming that smoking thing. And so we have a tendency to write people off. Is that reflective, our tendency reflective of what we see here in this verse? Oh, there's an obvious answer there, right? No, no, because we need to be patient with each other. I, I like to say, you know, I'm, I've been a believer now 30, what year is this? 32 years, okay, 32 years, and it would be unrealistic for me as a pastor to go to a young Christian and expect them to have a level of maturity and understanding 
that I've only arrived at at 32 years later. Do, do you know what I'm saying? But isn't that what we expect of people? We expect them to be like us. We expect them to act like us, think like us, do like us, quit doing other things with us. And we really have a hard time with people who maybe come to Christ newly and they're still struggling with some sort of addiction issue. And we forgot how long it took us to overcome our addiction issues. Do you know what I mean? Paul's saying here, look, he has a confidence that the, in the Lord that they would do what he's saying. He has a confidence that God's going to move them along. I guess what we could say from these passages is, is that not everybody's at the same level. Do we realize that? Not everybody's at the same level of maturity and growth. And some it takes longer than others to get there. Do you know what I'm saying? So like I'm learning some things now. I think back on it now and I'm thinking, man, why was I so thick? Why didn't I learn that earlier? I just had this conversation with my daughter when she was home a few weeks ago. Encouraging her to pursue something in her personal walk with the Lord. And I thought, you know, I wish I had known that 20 years ago. 30 years ago. Do do, do, do you know what I mean? But everybody's at a different level, and we need to recognize that. But the th- one thing that we can be sure of is that God's going to be what? Working in people's lives. Do you understand? Working in people's lives. Now, notice now, verse 5, Paul asked that the Lord direct their hearts into the love of God and the patience of God. Direct their hearts into the love of God and the patience of God. Now, that, to me, is pretty powerful. Over and over, we are encouraged to what? Love each other. You think we need to ask God to help us do that? Because some people are just not easy to what? Love, right? And then we're also encouraged to be what? Patience. Yeah, I saw that grimace. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we have to be patient with people. Why? Because people pluck our nerves. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? People pluck our nerves. You know, sometimes I get phone calls. I don't want to answer the phone. You know, you know. remember the day before caller ID and you didn't know who was calling? Now you know who's calling. I ain't got time for this. We got to be patient with other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so he's asking the Lord to direct our hearts into love and patience. Love and patience. We need to be doing that. Okay? So he's, he's encouraging them that. Now, look with me at verse 6 through 15. He's going to give them some final instructions. And this is where we're going to spend our time. But we command you. All right, notice now he's giving a command. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even as we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat." 
For we hear that there are some who walk among you in disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our word in the epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in everything. The Lord be with you all. All right, so let's look at these verses, final instructions. First of all, separation. You know, when I first became a Christian, I went to a little bitty independent Baptist church in West Columbia, South Carolina. And I remember I was a young college student. I was introduced to a concept that was totally brand new to me. Like, what in the world is this? It was called separation. How many of you have heard of that term? You've got to be separate from people, okay? And what they were talking about is, is that you couldn't associate with anybody who maybe differed than you in belief. So you couldn't hang out with anybody who goes to a charismatic church or anything, or a liberal church. And you couldn't hang out with people who were sinners, now, there's a problem with that doctrine, and if that is, is because if that were true, Paul says, I didn't tell you to separate yourself from the people of this world. If you had to, you'd have to leave this world. But what he was talking about was brothers in the church. So we're going to talk about separation, I think, in its truest form, not in the form that was maybe spread throughout fundamentalism. And that is, number one, Paul commands them not to associate with a believer who is living in sin. Paul commands them not to associate with a believer who is living in sin. Now, there's a difference here. There's a difference than, quote, saying, don't hang out with people who sin, because that's the rest of the world, but here he's specifically saying, don't hang out with somebody who says they're a Christian and sins. That's a completely different story. Why do you think it's different? Why do you think there's a difference there? Okay, so you don't want to associate with them because... If they're truly a part of God's family, they're going to miss being a part of God's family, and so they're going to be ashamed and come back. Okay? All right, that's good. So everybody recognize he's talking about, you know, our tendency is, is I don't want to hang out with a guy who drinks or hang out with a guy who's got a filthy mouth. But if he doesn't know Jesus, the reality is, is he's an unbeliever. He's going to act like an unbeliever. But if you talk about somebody who says they are a believer who's saved and they're acting that way, what are you supposed to do? Not associate with them. Now, that's pretty hard because we live in a tolerant culture, and I would say we live in a tolerant church where we're supposed to just love and accept everybody's behavior, even if they go to church, and especially if they go to church. But that's not what the Scripture is talking about here. In fact, if you notice verse 6, he's commanding you. This is not an option. This is a command. This is something for you to, to seriously start practicing. Now, here, he gives an example of what he did. 
Verses 7 and 9 is his example. He reminds his readers concerning how he conducted himself among them. So he's going to flesh it out now. He's going to explain to us exactly what he's talking about here when he says that we need to separate from these folks. He's going to say, remember, when I was among you, how I conducted myself. Basically, he's actually using a plural form here. He's talking about how he and his companions conducted themselves among the Thessalonians. He says, remember how I acted among you. He reminds them that he was not a burden as he worked to provide his own needs. So this is how, this is how Paul really stressed his life here. He, as he's ministering to these people, he wasn't there to sap off of them. He would pay his own way. He worked to pay his own way. That's how he conducted himself. He tells them that he could have exercised his right as an apostle, but he did not. He could have exercised his right as an authority. According to the scripture, we know that if you were an apostle, the church had every right for the believers to take care of them, but not just them, but take care of their family. So he could have exercised his right as an apostle, but he didn't. This is how he was conducting himself among them. He's trying to show them what it is to live for Christ. So he then moves immediately into the issue of idleness. And it's been a long time since I've heard a message about this. So look at verses 10 through 12. Look at what he's saying there. He's talking about somebody who doesn't work, who doesn't take care of himself, and he's basically relying on others in the church to take care of him. So look at what he says there. He reminds them that he commanded the church not to feed believers who will not work. You know, oftentimes I will hear, uh, I'll, I'll try not to stray into politics because I don't like to talk about politics, but I will talk about this because this oftentimes is the mentality in a church. Sometimes in church you'll hear folks say, The government shouldn't be taking care of people. That's the church's job. I just had a conversation with a young man in the last year who had that thought process. His thought was is that it's the church that's supposed to take care of the poor and take care of everybody there is. And I thought, okay, that's good. Now, I said to him, are you sure? Well, yeah. Well, actually what he was doing was quoting some other pastor who had said it. He didn't realize the understanding of that. But the reality is is that churches in America, churches in the world, do not have, if you look at it from a practical standpoint, do not have the resources to take care of everybody. Does everybody recognize that just on the surface? Like, I mean, if you got our financial statement here, do we have the resources to take care of the poor in Kerwinsville? No. No. In fact, when you come to passages like this, especially if they're a believer and they're in your midst, Paul's making it an emphatic statement here that you're not even supposed to take care of them if they could work for themselves. Did you understand what I'm saying? So why did I raise that issue? I think we have to be careful how we react to whatever we see in our culture by saying it's the church's job. No, it's not the church's job. Now, we're supposed to take care of each other, 
be there for each other, help each other. But if you have somebody who could help themselves and they're not, what's Paul saying here? And it's a command again. What's he saying here? Do I help them? No. No. Okay, so let's go on. It has been reported that they have some who are in, who are living in sin, are idle and gossips. So they have people among them who are claiming to be brothers who are coming into their midst and, but they're not, they're not taking care of themselves. They're relying on others, but they're also, he uses the term busybodies. What's a busybody, folks? What's a busybody? I think we know what a busybody is, right? A gossip. Hey, did you hear about Rob? Did you hear about Denny? Did you hear about Brad? Do you know what I'm saying? In in fact, in the Christian world, it's not even like that. Hey, pray for Brad. Do you ever pray somebody in the back? Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's what it's called, praying someone in the back. And it's, it's actually an excuse to what? Gossip. And he's saying, look, it's been reported that they have some who are what? Idle, that is, they're not taking care of themselves. They're just kind of got more time than they know what to do with, but they're expecting others to help them. But as they got more time to know what to do with, they're spending their time what? Gossiping about other people, being busybodies. So he calls such Christians to leave quiet lives and to provide for their own needs. Now, all right, so he just said, he just said there's those among them who are idle and busybodies. Now he says those people need to be leading quiet lives and taking care of themselves. Now, why would he tell somebody who's engaged in gossip to lead a quiet life? Why would he tell somebody that? Is it just his way of saying shut up? What's he talking about here? He's saying they lead a quiet life. Well, if you did a search on the issue of being quiet, if you looked at it in the New Testament, when Paul uses that term, he always talks about leading a quiet life in terms of leading a peaceable life with other people. Now, let me just stop for a moment. When you were talking about a gossiper, somebody who's in a gossiper, are they always in conflict with other people? Do y'all not know gossips? Maybe we don't have any in our church anymore, thankfully, okay? Do, do, when you Think about a gossip for a moment. Do they live a quiet life with other people? No, Rhonda says no. What are they always doing? Stirring up trouble with people, causing havoc, wrecking havoc, okay? Wrecking havoc. And so when you talk about it, he's saying to them, lead a quiet life, he, that, that term quiet life is very much reflective of how he uses it in other epistles of leaving, living a peaceable life with other people. You need to live peaceably. In fact, in one other passage, he talks about minding your own business. Like, Focus on yourself, not on what other people are doing. Okay? So when he's talking, he tells them that such Christians need to live a quiet life. They mind their own business, and they need to provide for their own needs. Now, here's the encouragement. 
Paul encourages his readers not to grow weary and tired of doing what is good. Now, why would he? Okay, he's, stop for a moment. Think about his flow. It's not like random thoughts being written down. Everything flows together. He's just talked about the command about not hanging out with people who say one thing, live another thing, especially those who aren't taking care of themselves, who are involved in uh, gossip and other idle talk. And now he moves to where he says, you and I need to not be weary in doing good. Why would he bring that up? I mean, it speaks for itself. Why would he bring that up, though? Yeah. Why am I bothering you? Okay. All right, did you hear what Bruce said? Everybody got what Bruce said? When you see that kind of stuff happening around you, you almost feel like, why should I bother? Am I doing any good? Is this really helping anybody? This person is just, how many of you like somebody who constantly comes to you asking for help? After a while, you just kind of like, I don't want to help. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to help. Does this kind of drain you, Right? So I think that's why he's giving this encouragement here. He's kind of like coming along and saying, look, in light of what I was just talking about, for the rest of you, don't get weary in doing good. You need to continue to do good. Just because you got one person in your midst who's sapping everybody, there are other people who have legitimate needs that you can help at that moment, so help them. Right? So help them. Don't Grow weary in doing good. You do what you need to do for the other person. You need to do what you need to do. We get weary in doing good, right? Especially if we come, become confronted with people who are idle, who should be helping themselves. So he's saying to them, look, encourages his readers not to grow weary. Here's the other thing. His readers are not to associate with anyone who denies the teaching of this epistle. So he's going to take it one step further. He's saying not just that I don't want you hanging out with people who aren't living right, who say they're a believer, but I don't want you hanging out with people who deny the teaching of this epistle. So what were some of the teachings that we saw here in this epistle? Second coming. We saw that very evident in these epistles, right? the return of Jesus Christ. He's saying, don't, I don't want you hanging out with people. Why is he making that point here? Because he wants them to realize, he's already talked about it with them earlier, that there are false teachers, false believers among them who are going to what? Lead them astray. So don't hang out with them. Don't hang out with them. He goes on, the purpose of separation is to cause the individual to be shamed. That's the purpose, not to punish them. A lot of times when I hear of, of people shunning, it's a form of punishment. But that's not the, the point here. The purpose is to, for them to be shamed in order to, so that they could be restored later. Ultimately, the purpose is restoration. If you want to write that down, you can do that as well. Ultimately, the purpose is restoration. The reason why we would separate ourselves from people who aren't doing right is so that they become ashamed of where they're at, and they ultimately what? Turn back to Jesus. 
Ultimately, all church discipline needs to be for the purpose of what? Restoration. Restoration. Okay, now let's continue on here. They are not to trust, they are not to treat such a one as an enemy, but to seek the opportunity to warn him. Again, he's talking about how we're to deal with people who aren't where they should be. He's talking about how to deal with people who aren't where they should be. You know what? I've been around a long time. I've met lots of folks who've been disciplined. Some of them, it's been the most tragic case of discipline. Yes, they probably needed discipline, but they were treated like an enemy. An enemy. So we need to think about that. So how do we treat them? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there real quick. It tells you exactly how to, to deal with somebody who's in sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Look at what he says there. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And notice how you're supposed to restore them. In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What's he talking about there? If you're going to go and deal with somebody, you deal with them gently, but you also recognize that it could be you. Given the same circumstances, same situation, you could be doing the same thing. You could be falling to the same sin. So look at the blessing and greeting in verses 16 through 18. We saw part of it already. Verse 17 says, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which I sign in every epistle, so I write, Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul asked the Lord to give them peace and to be with them always. So he's asking the Lord to give them peace, to be with them always. All right, let's go on. He writes his final greeting with his own hand. You may not be aware of this. Paul did not write his own letters. He had somebody, he dictated his letters. And typically, though, he wrote in his own hand. And some believe that is because he had an eye problem. One, one epistle, he says, see what large letters I use. Did you understand? So, all right, so then the final prayer is Paul prayed that great, the grace of Jesus Christ would be with them all. So we're wrapping up Second Thessalonians.